All right. Well, as you probably know, we are going through a short series here in the Advent season called Expectant, where we are considering the hope that God has for his people, um, the great promises of what God is doing, the kingdom he is bringing. And we are going through Revelation 21 and 22 to do that. So we're going to continue to do that today. If you want to turn to Revelation 21. As you read through Revelation 21 and 22, um, in the midst of all of these glorious descriptions of great joy and satisfaction of living water without payment, of God dwelling with his people, of God making all things new, healing the nations, all of these images and descriptions of the glory of the kingdom that God is planning and bringing along. You also have a number of statements about what is not present in that kingdom, what has been removed and what has been judged. So, for example, as you go through 21 and 22, um, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. If you go ahead to verse 27, chapter 21, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then early in chapter 22, no longer will there be anything accursed. And then I also take the, the phrases that night will be no more and that the sea was no more in a similar vein. That uh, speaking of all evil, all that is threatening and frightening being removed. There'll be no more night. There'll be no more darkness. All that is evil, threatening, and frightening will be done away with. And so as you preach through these, or perhaps even as you read through these chapters, you find yourself wanting to keep it positive. Can we just talk about the good and wonderful and joyous aspects of the new creation? And you come upon all of these, these verses about judgment, and it can feel like an unwelcome interruption into our dreaming and our longing for what God has in store for his people. But there's a reminder here that a major component, component of what God will and must do to bring about his kingdom is once and for all deal with evil. Once and for all, do away with all that is threatening and oppressive, unjust, and fearful. God has to do something about this. And that message is all throughout Scripture. And so what I want to do today is to consider these these few passages, and draw your attention to a few things in them and across Scripture to help us think about the judgment of sin correctly. But not only think about it, I want to help us consider how we ought to feel about it. How should we feel about God bringing down his judgment, final judgment, on the godless and the wicked? How does? How should this affect our view of God himself? I realize this is a week before Christmas, but I hate to tell you this is not going to be the most sentimental of messages. <laughs> but it's here before us. So we're going to start in 21, 
Chapter 21, verses 7 to 8, and we'll camp out here for a little bit. It says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And, and that son there is referencing a promise to David in the Old Testament that David, one of his heirs, would be like a son of God, which is pointing forward to Jesus. But here, this is extending that to all who belong to Jesus. You be like a son to God. Verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. One of the absolutely striking things about Scripture is its insistence that in the end, there are only two kinds of people. In the end, life is black and white. There are various ways that the Bible describes these two kinds of people. Jesus says that you are either for him or you are against him. Paul says that you either boast in the cross of Christ you make much of it and you see it as the essence of the wisdom and power of God and you base your life and identity and hope on the cross of Christ or you find it to be the epitome of foolishness and weakness. And here we see that there are those who conquer or prevail or overcome, those who by patient endurance and faith in God make it faithfully to the end as God's children, if you think about, if you're familiar with the parable of the soils, this is the seed sown on good soil, which bears much fruit. And then there are the faithless, who in their faithlessness give themselves to all sorts of godless living. Again, in the parable of the, the soils or seeds, these are the seeds that either never take root or seem to quickly take root but fail to endure, fail to conquer when things get hard, when the cares and pleasures of this world prove too tempting. These faithless are also described as the cowardly. They are more concerned to please men and society than to please God. They are more fearful of being judged by men and society than being judged by God. They're more concerned to cling to their sin than confess it and bring it to cross. They're more concerned to rule their own lives and find joy and life on their own terms than to find the joy and life that are in God. Again, this dividing of humanity in the end into, into two groups kinds of people is one of the most surprising and unexpected things about the Bible. That if it was not here, we probably would not see life this way. But it's the message of the Bible from front to back. The final assessment of this life is not a spectrum from Mother Teresa to Hitler, and hopefully you end up more like Mother Teresa. God's command is not simply to be a slightly better person than those around you and hope God grades on a curve. That's not the world we live in. That's not the God who created this world. We are told that in the end there are the faithful and the faithless. There are those who have beheld God in all of his glory and goodness and grace and come to him for life and those who have refused to see him and refused to come. 
And one of the reasons that this shocks us so much is because it is utterly God-centered. It, it shows us that this life is not ultimately about you and I, but about God. We live in a God-centered, God-created, God-entranced world. All things exist by, through, and for him, including you and I. We exist for him. And in the end, we either acknowledge him as God and Lord and judge and Savior and come to him by faith, or we don't. Again, it is very clear that there are two kinds of people in the end. This is a frightening thing. It's a weighty thing. And part of what the passages like these in the Bible about judgment and the, and the two destinies of mankind, part of what they do is make us feel the weight of this. They pull back the curtains and they awaken our senses to see that life is much more significant and weighty and a serious endeavor than we realize. The stakes are much higher than we realize. Now, of course, there is some good news. If you are here today, that end is not now. Even as John is having these visions and, and writing this down, and these words are being communicated to the churches that he's writing to, that there is still time to repent and come to God. These descriptions are given in part as warnings, as motivation to turn today to God. Because today, while you might be among these groups of faithless and cowardly and idolaters whose portion is the second death, that doesn't have to be your final lot. And so, interestingly, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says almost the exact same thing as Revelation 21, but with a glorious addition. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idol nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. In fact, such, if we really understood the depths of our hearts, were all of us. But you were washed, you were sanctified, that is, set aside as God's holy people. You were justified, justified, declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Such were some of you. Those glorious words. This is the good news of the gospel of what God has done for us. That who we were, or even who we are today, or the what we've done or haven't done isn't the last word, isn't the final verdict. God invites us to come to him and be washed clean. You were faithless, trusting in yourself rather than God. You were idolaters, worshiping all hosts of things and giving yourself to all hosts of things rather than to your creator God. You were greedy, 
living for only yourself and trying to build your own little kingdom. You were adulterers and sexually immoral, giving yourself to all kinds of lusts. But in coming to God through Jesus, acknowledging your sin and trusting in his death in your place, you are washed, sanctified, justified. Once and for all, your lot, destiny, heritage, that which is coming to you in the future has changed. Who you are has changed. How God sees you and how God treats you changes because of Jesus. All throughout Scripture, God is calling people, drawing, inviting people to himself. Calling people to trust him and find him to be gracious and forgiving slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love as it's repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Old Testament and New Testament front to back, you see God calling people to simply come to him. Turn to me and find life. Choose life and not death. Come to me. This isn't simply about deciding to be more religious, deciding to be a part of a church and do that whole religion thing. This isn't simply about agreeing to a certain, certain doctrinal statement or about being more spiritual. This is about coming to our creator God, acknowledging him as such, acknowledging who he has revealed himself to be in scripture and that he is our gracious savior. And so perhaps even today, you need to consider God's call. Will you come to him? Not just go through the motions of, of church and religion and whatever. Not just try to appease God in your conscience by doing some good things, but truly giving yourself up to be his. Will you come to him? Now, all throughout scripture, we see time and time again that there are many who refuse to come. We see how hard-hearted the human heart is. How deep, deeply entrenched our sin is. How tightly our grip of our self-rule is. I mean, you don't have to read far in Scripture to realize this. And even with the most gracious invitations to life and the promises of reward that God gives us, even with the most stern of warnings of what life outside of God is like, People refuse to come. Revelation 16 gives us a vivid example of this. It's a hard passage to read. Like much of Revelation, it's filled with a lot of images and symbols, and we're not going to get into unpacking what all of those mean right now. But you get the general idea. So I'm going to read 10 verses from Revelation 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its, its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. 
And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Again, there's lots of images in, in here and lots of questions about what they mean. Um, I think very intentionally this brings to mind the ten plagues that God brought on Egypt in the Old Testament. But what is even more astounding than these terrifying descriptions of God's judgment is that those who experience them, because of their wickedness, still refuse to repent. Just like Pharaoh, after plague, after plague, after plague, after plague. Still, the heart is hard. It is utterly astounding the refusal of these people, in spite of their pain and agony, which they brought on themselves in rejecting God, in spite of the promises of life and goodness that God offers, if they would only turn to refuse to turn to God and find relief in life. How hard the human heart can be. How resistant we can be to loosen the grip of our self-rule and submit to our Creator, who is a good and loving and saving God. And I don't take Revelation 16 to be only talking about some future time. This is a reality now. This is a reality, a true picture of the human heart now. You've likely seen this, seen such hearts in those around you. Perhaps you've seen it in your own heart. Such that coming to faith in God is not simply a matter of being convinced of some, some facts or the truth of the Bible. It certainly involves that. Even more than that, it involves a radical transformation of our will, of our desires, of our loves, of our worship, of that which we cling tightly, tightest to. How tightly we cling to these things. How desperately we need God to save us from ourselves. And how desperately our world needs God to save us from the evil and pain and oppression and justice that we humans cause. So that's the situation we find ourselves in, where God is calling all to himself to find life and goodness. As C.S. Lewis says, we have these unblushing promises of reward of, renewed, of a renewed world of unimaginable joy and satisfaction and everlasting life that continually leads us into unending worship and adoration of God. 
But here and now we have this world of sin and evil and brokenness. We have hard hearts that are unwilling to come to God and submit to his plan to make everything right. And so, for God to bring about his glorious kingdom, for God to bring about his joy-inducing, thirst-quenching, eternal kingdom, there is a great reckoning, great removal that has to occur. This is no merely slap on a band-aid and it's good. This is no mere, well, let's give a motivational speech or maybe some new form of government and we'll fix this all. No, what do you do with the disease of sin that has wrecked this world for thousands of years that humanity has yet to find a cure for? What do you do with the disease of sin that has brought unbearable pain and suffering and trouble and death on our world? One of the great errors of our day, and perhaps this is of every day, but certainly we fall into this, is thinking that there is some other way. Of thinking that the problem's not that bad and surely we can handle it. We don't really want to face evil squarely in the face and call it evil. We want to think that we can handle it. And this is why the best stories um, and the most true-to-life stories, books, movies, plays, have genuinely evil characters in them. You don't read a book, you don't go to the movie to, to watch something, to read something where everything is fine all the time. You're just not reading those books. The Truman Show was like that, and then you realized it was all fake. The Lego movie was like that, kids, briefly. Everything was awesome, and then pretty quickly, everything was not awesome. And that's the real world. The real world is full of evil. It's not all awesome. We can perhaps go on a little while pretending that that's not the case. We live in a society of relative peace and stability. Unlike many other societies, perhaps most other societies before us, we don't have warring tribes threatening to destroy our town day by day. Most wars today happen far away from us, and we probably don't feel readily threatened by them. We have laws that curb a lot of outward evil, and our society is generally law-abiding compared, compared to others. And so it's easy for us to think of evil as something out there, something for our government, for our militaries to, to deal with. But if we're honest, we know it's a lot closer than that. We know Jeremiah 17, 9 is true. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If, if there weren't so much social incentive to not murder and not steal and not commit adultery and not cheat, do we really think the goodness of our hearts would carry us on just fine? No, the message of the Bible and the message that our hearts know that this world needs is that God must deal with suffering. God must do deal with sin and evil. Only a judgment by our creator God, before whom there is no hiding, pretending, bribing, and the like, will bring the peace that our world desperately needs. And so in this way, 
Judgment is connected to salvation. The removal of evil is connected to the ushering in of new life. You, you don't have one without the other. Salvation for the girl caught in the sex trade means that God judges those who are oppressing her. Salvation for the people group being threatened with genocide means that God judges their enemies. Salvation for those caught in abusive relationships means that God judges the abusers. All sin is judged either on the cross for those who truly come to God or in the end. And so part of the reason that God's coming kingdom is such a relief and comfort and hope is that it follows a great and just judgment. It effectively and perfectly deals with sin and evil. And that's what these statements in Revelation 21 and 22 are helping us to see and helping us to see how good and needed that is. So I'll just draw your attention to a couple other things in here. In, in verses, chapter 21, verses 25 through 27, we are told that this city, which is an image for the people of God, we are told that its gates will never be shut by day and that there will be no night there. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. So what are the purpose of gates and walls around a city? What are the purpose of gates and walls around a home? For protection, right? Protection against evil forces. Protection from dangers. Open gates, on the other hand, means that there's no evil forces. Nothing threatening. In God's coming kingdom, there will no, be no need for security guards, security systems, doorbell cameras, no need for laws and the threat of punishment, no need for law enforcement and court systems. The gates will always be open. You can leave your doors unlocked all the time with no worries. The only people who dwell in that city, in that kingdom, are those who have come to God in Christ, have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, and now love and serve their Creator perfectly. Perhaps you have an older Christian individual in your life who is just warm and humble and wise, genuinely cares for people, speaks of God as if they know him, like lives next door, and is just comforting to be around. A person that you would leave your one-year-old child with and not have a second thought. Completely trustworthy. Well, these kind of people give us only a glimpse of the safety and the fellowship and the joy of that city. No one is out to get us. No one is untrustworthy. No one is out to take advantage of us, tear us down, belittle us. Everyone is trustworthy. Everyone loves their creator perfectly and thus they love one another perfectly. And so when God judges the unrepentant, cowardly, faithless, detestable, and the like, in bringing a judgment, God is also saving you, saving his people from them and their harm. Peter tells us that when God judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he was also saving Lot, who was, quote, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now, we may not daily face outright persecution as believers. That may not be a daily reality for us. 
But we do live in a world full of godlessness and evil, of truth being distorted, God being mocked, people being preyed upon, and we ought to be, in a sense, tormented by this. And this is why God's judgments in Scripture are often met with worship and thanksgiving, as in Revelation 16. Because by judging evildoers, God is granting relief to his people. He is saving them from the harm and persecution and temptation and torment of being surrounded by the godless wicked. Which brings us to the question that I want to leave you with. How ought we to feel about this? What is an appropriate emotional response to God's judgment of the wicked? I'll leave you with three considerations from Scripture. First of all, there is no room for pride, for gloating, for patting ourselves on the back, puffing ourselves up. Remember that phrase from 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you. In fact, all of you. We were just like everyone else. Every one of us needs to be washed by the blood of the Lamb as much as anyone else. There is only salvation by grace. Only salvation by the willing death of Jesus in our place. There is no other option. And so when God's people are vindicated and God's enemies judged, there will be no room for pride. And there is not today. Secondly, there is room for confidence and hope in God's promised justice. Confidence that he will effectively and justly deal with all sin and evil. We can right now be confident and just in that. And in that, we can find relief and comfort. In that, we can even be grateful and even worship. As we saw in Revelation 16, not gloating or pride, but worship. On that day, when God withdraws his protection and goodness from the godless, from those who persistently and finally refuse to come to him, from those who suppressed the truth and committed many injustices with no repentance, as Revelation 16 says, it will be what they deserve. It will be right. God's judgment will be right, fair, and praise, praiseworthy. As you can imagine, like when a human judge lays down a hard but good and necessary judgment in a case that is praised by all as the, clearly the right thing to do, given the situation, given the brokenness and sinfulness and evil of our world. And when God does this, it will prepare the way for a world where righteousness dwells and only righteousness, where peace a world of peace with no more tears, pain, death, this new heavens and new earth. As I said, this is not the most sentimental of messages. I imagine this is hard for many of us to grasp and reckon with, myself included. But either scripture is wrong or our intuitions and feelings and perspectives are wrong and still need to be formed by God's word. 
And then third and finally, right now, we should desire and pray and seek for the salvation of all. That is clearly our call right now. The Bible calls us to go and make disciples of all nations, to make known the great compassion and mercy of God, and call and invite others to turn to him while they have the chance. Though the human heart is hard beyond belief, God can soften hard hearts. God can save the hardest of people. And he loves to do so, and he intends to use us, our words, our prayers, our presence. So again, a passages like this tend to peel back the curtains, pull back the curtains, tend to awaken us from our drunken stupor and show us that life is much more significant and weighty than we think. This is not how we naturally see things. This is not how serious of an endeavor that we think life is. And serious does not mean lacking joy. Serious just means something significant is at stake. There is so much more at stake than we realize. And this isn't only true for us, and so let's take care of our business. This is true for the whole world. God is God of the whole world, and he's called us to make disciples of all nations. And this is an urgent and weighty business that he has given us. Let's pray.